Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're continuing our studies in this epistle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll read from verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Amen. And we know that God will always bless the reading of His own inspired Word. You will know that the Bible consistently stresses the unity of the body of the Lord's people. The psalmist says in Psalm 133 in verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, his great high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, 17 prayed for unity among the people of God. Uh, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me, and I have loved them even as you have loved me. John 17, verse 23. And yet, in spite of those statements and that standard that's set by the Word of God, the church often tragically has been divided, if not by splits and schism, but certain, uh, certainly by cliques and factions. And often that which causes the Lord to lament Satan not only fosters but applauds because few things discourage and weaken a church more than bickering, backbiting, and fighting among the members. And the reason why division so often arises uh, in the church is simply down to sin. James, writing to churches uh, in his day, in James 4 and verse 1, says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desires from self, from selfishness, from self-centeredness, from a sinful heart. The ego, I, that's the problem. And if sin is not dealt with, conflict is inevitable. Now, although not desirable, division has been a reality since the inception of the church. It's tremendously discouraging and depressing, and yet... From the church's infancy, unity has been a problem. And it's interesting to me that the very first problem addressed by Paul in this letter to the Corinthians has to do with unity. Before dealing with the position of the apostles, uh, lawsuits among Christians, the expulsion of the immoral brother, uh, even the uh, teaching around the Lord's Supper and the resurrection, the first thing that he deals with is division. That's how serious Paul viewed division in the church. So we're going to look at this uh, subject, this passage under four headings. And I want you, first of all, to notice the problem 
with unity in the church in Corinth. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Reports had reached the Apostle Paul that all was not well in the Corinthian church, that there was quarreling among them. The authorized version says contentions. The Christian standard version says rivalry. The news had come to Paul by members of Chloe's household or Chloe's people. Now, who Chloe was, we can't be sure. She was probably a merchant, a wealthy businesswoman who was in membership of the church in Corinth, and it was her merchants, her servants, her people who brought news to the Apostle Paul while he was in Corinth. Now, it's interesting that Paul names her. He is making it clear that he's not acting on hearsay or idle gossip. Uh, He doesn't allow this woman, whoever she was, to sort of say people are saying or acting under a cloak of anonymity. He names her and he uh, brings the evidence before the church. And it's interesting too that Chloe takes this information straight to the leadership of the church. Now, Paul leaves us in no doubt as to the exact nature of the problem in verse 12. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. It seems that the church had developed a party spirit, had divided into four groups, four cliques around the personality of their teachers. Each had its own slogans and its own emphasis and its own supporters. Now, whatever differences existed between the groups, it seems to have had more to do with style than substance and more to do with the apparent differences between those four individuals than actual differences. Because Paul commends Apollos and Cephas or Peter in the epistle, so there was no substantial difference between them. It had to do with personality or perceived difference Uh, between them uh, in the minds and understanding of the Corinthians. So there were those who said, I am of Paul. Now, since Paul had planted the church in Corinth, it may be that some of the Corinthians who had been directly converted through him uh, had attached themselves to him and were defensive of him, that he had brought them to faith and they were forever in their debt. The transformation in their lives Uh, that had brought them out of immoral paganism or strict Judaism to an understanding of the gospel led to a a loyalty to him that exceeded what was right and proper. This is the kind of thing that every church with a little history behind it faces. No one is good as the last man or the first man. And any loyalty that is shown to the new man is taken as a slight on the previous man, they were of Paul. Secondly, some said they were of Apollos. Now, although we don't know an awful lot about Apollos, we do know from Acts 18 that he came from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, Alexandria was the Cambridge or the Oxford of the ancient world. It was a world-renowned center of learning. It had its own library of over 10,000 books, a museum, and a faculty of philosophy that was distinguished by the rhetoric, the eloquence, and the fervor of its graduates. 
And it's interesting in Acts 18 that we're told that Apollos was an eloquent man and fervent in speech. Now, although Tarsus, the place where Paul was from, was a respected center of learning, it was nothing in comparison to Alexandria. So, if Alexandria was the Oxford or Cambridge of the ancient world, then Tarsus was the Queen's or the new University of Ulster of the ancient world. And so there developed, it seemed, in the church a group of pseudo-intellectuals, academic snobs who liked and preferred the polished approach of Apollos rather than the direct, uh, straight, shooting-from-the-hip approach of Paul. I think that's why Paul takes up the whole subject of wisdom in the second half of chapter 1. Look at what he says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, we can't blame Apollos for this. Uh, We are what we are. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined preaching as truth through personality, and preachers do deliver the truth in their own distinctive style. But what the Corinthians had done was they had elevated that style, that polished, eloquent approach, and made it as a subject for division. And that's wrong, if not sinful. Uh, Thirdly, then, there were those who said, I am of Cephas, Now, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, and that in itself gives us a clue to what was happening here. It seems that this group that attached themselves to Peter preferred the old Jewish ways to the full light and understanding of New Testament gospel. Uh, Since Peter was the apostle to the Jews and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, those of a more Judaistic kind of frame of mind attached themselves to his name. We know from Acts 18 that Crispus, the ruler uh, in the synagogue, and his successor, Sophanes, were both converted, both from a strong Jewish background. Now, you can imagine the, the, the church comprised of these Uh, formerly strict legalistic Jews, and into this uh, church comes all these pagans converted out of immorality and idolatry, and they all pile into the church. And then what these Jewish believers do is they retreat into uh, a more conservative brand of Christianity, a more Judaistic brand of Judaism, because they feel threatened by all these newcomers that have arrived. They gathered round the the name of Peter. Now, there's no evidence that Peter ever visited uh, Corinth, but his name was a convenient rallying point for these people. And there are examples of that in all churches, people who witness what they um, feel to be change and downgrade, and so they retreat into their uh, conservative cultural castles so that they can shoot their objections out from the safety of what they know. So you had then, I am of Paul, the traditionalist. I am of Apollos, the intellectualist. I am of Cephas, the legalist. I am of Christ. Now at first sign, that sounds so good. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. That's so much better. Or is it? If those who followed Paul were guilty of traditionalism and those who followed Apollos 
were guilty of pseudo-intellectualism, and those who followed um, Cephas were guilty of legalism, then those who claimed to follow Christ were guilty of elitism, a supercilious spiritual elitism. This is the kind of group we don't use labels. We don't need teachers. We just go directly to Christ. There was a kind of anti-authoritarian rebellion against uh, the leadership and the teachers of the church. Christ is our leader, they would say, proudly. We depend on Him. We go straight to Him. It's He that teaches us. They were this supercilious spiritual elite who dismissed Paul, Apollos, and Peter. But you see, Paul isn't criticizing the role of the teacher. He's criticizing the attitude of the Corinthians who gathered themselves round these teachers and made them a source of division. We need teachers to instruct us and to teach us the Word of God. But this Christ party dismissed them out of hand, and they sort of pointed the finger at the other groups as being totally unspiritual. The world is full, and the church is full of groups like this, where no role is given to the teacher. They wait for a a direct revelation from God, or they share an opinion on a text of Scripture. You know, I get so frustrated at times when people say in um, home Bible study groups, what does that portion of Scripture mean to you? Well, that's, that's totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It's, it's what it actually means that's important, what the, the Bible is actually saying. So here were the, the, these problems. There were divisions in the church, and those divisions centered on the personality and style of the teachers rather than any significant substance. I follow Paul, traditionalism. I follow Apollos, intellectualism. I follow Cephas, legalism. I follow Christ, a spiritual kind of elitism. That was the problem with unity in the church. The second thing I want you to notice is the appeal to unity in the church. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Now, that word divisions there in verse 10 is the Greek word schismata, from which we get our English word schism. In a physical sense, it was used of the tearing of a piece of material. It's used by our Lord, you remember, when he talks about uh, sewing a, a piece of new cloth onto a piece of uh, old cloth. And he says, and no one sews a patch of unstrung cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away and tear for the garment, making it even uh, worse. That word tear then is the word that's used here. The Corinthians were tearing themselves apart. Now that had disastrous consequences for the gospel and for the witness of the church in the community. A church quarrel never needs to be advertised. It always advertises itself and spreads like wildfire among unbelievers. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the devil, acknowledging that principle, will seek to disrupt and destroy the unity of the church in order to undermine the effectiveness of the witness of that church in any given location. 
So with all the passion of a gospel preacher or a missionary with a great burden for the loss, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Don't you know, he says, you are brothers? And don't you know that the Lord that you worship, the Lord Jesus Christ, desires unity among you? It's often said, you know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's true of the Christian family as well. Uh, It's the Lord that chooses us to be part of his family. And his choice is not only uh, unconditional, that he uh, chooses uh, sinners to be saved unconditionally, but often his choice is unconventional, that he chooses, as we will find out later, the weak things of this world to confound the wise. Have you ever wondered why there are so many odd people in in church? Have you ever wondered that? Well, uh, that's the grace of God. That's the people that he chooses to be part of his family. You don't choose them. He has chosen them. And you have to work hard at maintaining, in fact, you have an obligation to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is how seriously Paul regards this whole matter, and he passionately appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he uses two phrases in verse 10 to describe how that unity must be maintained. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, first of all, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that word agree means to agree verbally. It's used, uh, it's translated in the authorized version that all of you speak the same thing. You speak the same thing. It was used of uh, political parties in the Roman Senate that those parties had to sing off the same hymn sheet. They had this present a united front. They had to say the same thing, lest the division would be highlighted and be a means of uh, political opposition to them, that we need to speak the same thing. And these people were speaking the wrong thing. They were saying, quote, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. They were saying the wrong thing. And as James reminds us, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And just as a snake keeps its poison in its tongue, so there is poison in the the tongue of uh, uh, an individual, and it can cause great damage when injected into any other individual. In other words, he says you need to be careful what you say that you you don't use your words to create division in the church. You don't speak in an inappropriate way. You don't call people to the Christ party, to the Apollos party, to the Paul party, or the Cephas party. You speak the same things, he says. And not only do you speak the same things, he says that you think the same things. He says, again in verse 10, but that you might be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, he's, he's not saying that your theological convic- uh, convictions must be, be diluted and that you only say those things and think those things that you have in common with other believers. 
The, the, the word means to be like-minded. It means to focus upon. It means to have the same goal. It means to pull in the same direction. In other words, the things that divide you, the convictions that divide you, those are, those are important. Don't forsake your convictions. Don't give up your convictions. But the things that you are united, you that unite you, like the gospel itself, focus on those things, stress those things, and realize that, that there's a world that's perishing out there that needs the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel that unites you and brings you together. And that ought to be your priority. You ought to have, as we'll see later, you ought to have gospel priorities. Think the same thing. Be of the same judgment. As Richard Baxter puts it, in essentials unity and non-essentials diversity, in all things charity. So you need to um, realize that there are primary doctrines uh, that are absolutely essential uh, to saving faith, like the virgin birth, like the resurrection, like justification by faith. There are secondary doctrines that we um, have different opinions on, but are still important to us. And uh, uh, it's those things that we hold in charity, that we give people charity to, uh, uh, we extend love to people to hold different convictions on ourselves when we're united on the main things and the plain things. So he says then, uh, we are to speak the same things and we are to think the same things. Problem with unity in the church, the appeal to unity in the church, the principles in unity for the church. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In this verse, Paul directs the Corinthians to Christ. Um, and evidently, you see, division arises within a congregation when the congregation takes its eyes off Christ, the main things and the plain things. Now, in verse 13, Paul asks three rhetorical questions to which he expects the answer, no. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. With masterful skill and devastating logic, Paul exposes their divisions as a contradiction of those basic gospel principles. In these three questions, he sets before them three great principles that were flaunted by their behavior. The first was the unity of the body of Christ. He says, is Christ divided or literally has Christ been parceled out? So that, that you have these different groups in the church and the Apollos group, they have a little bit of Christ and the Paul group, they have a little bit of Christ and, and the Cephas group, they have a little bit of Christ. You can't, he says, divide Christ up like that. If a poor person calls at your house, you don't open the door to them and say, leave your legs at the door and, and the rest of you come in. Christ is a whole, a body, and we are part of that body. He is stressing the organic unity of the body of Christ. Every true Christian is a member of the body of Christ, and because of that, is organically linked to every other part of the body of Christ. Whether you like it or not, you are in a fraternal relationship with every other Christian. Paul puts it like this in 
chapter 12 and verse 20, as it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, what the Bible says is that what we are organically, we are to work out practically. If in a local church we are part of the same body, we should act and function as part of the same body. That's the first point. He says, uh, it's Christ divided. It's the unity of the body of Christ. We're part of the same body. We're part of the same family. The second principle he uses is the cross of Christ. He asks, was Paul crucified for you? He brings them back to first gospel principles. The reason that you're in the church is not because of Paul, not because of Apollos, not because of Cephas, but because of Christ and his death upon the cross. They forgot, you see, they were sinners saved by grace. The cross unites believers. It's what they have in common. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men onto myself. And it's like a funnel. As he draws men to himself, he draws them to one another. And whenever you're tempted to fall out and disagree or dismiss another Christian, you've got to look for the blood mark on them. The same blood that saved you, the same blood that cleansed you, the same blood that washed you is the same blood that saved them, that cleansed them and washed them. How can you dismiss them? You see, the, the cross empties us of pride. You cannot stand before the cross full of your own importance because when you stand before the, the cross, you say to yourself, that should have been me. That's what my sins deserved. That cry that Jesus cried from the cross, and he cried, my God, but our cry should be, God, God. Why have you forsaken me? That should have been the cry of our hearts from the depths of hell. But we've been saved. We have been sanctified. And can we not tolerate those who have been saved by the same cross and by the same blood? Division usually arises when people take their eyes off the cross. So Paul's principles for unity, the unity of Christ, the cross of Christ, and then the lordship of Christ. The third question that uh, Paul asks is this, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Well, God forbid. They were baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In their baptism, they identified with Christ. They uh, attached themselves to Christ. They identified themselves as followers of Christ. Now, this is interesting because Paul is trying to play down the ordinance of baptism. He's saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except the few exceptions that I mentioned because your party spirit, your attitude would attach more to the person who baptized you than to the significance of the ordinance itself. He says, I'm glad I left the baptizing to someone else because you're so perverted in your understanding that you would turn my baptizing of you into something that it's not. And the interesting thing is that although he is downplaying baptism, he assumes that all the Corinthians have been baptized. 
He asked, were you baptized into the name of Paul? And the answer is no, they were baptized into the name of Christ. They identified with Christ. Now, if Paul was writing to a church that had people who were baptized and people who weren't baptized, then his argument would have fallen short. He assumes that he's writing to a baptized membership. Everyone was baptized. There was no such thing as an unbaptized believer and indeed an unchurched believer in the early church. All were baptized. And just, I, I know some have different convictions about baptism, but, but just to say that you must be persuaded in your mind that the baptism that you have received was a valid baptism. You must be persuaded of that or you're living in disobedience because everyone, everyone in the early church that was a believer was baptized. Now, to be baptized into the name of Christ, into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's not you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you listen carefully sometimes to the words that I use when people are baptized, I don't say I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit but I baptize you into, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because it's, it's, it's representing identification. It's, it's you're taking up his name. You're taking up his cause. You're taking up his cross. Baptism stresses the lordship of Christ, and that's what Paul is stressing here. You don't belong to me, he says. You don't belong to Apollos. You don't belong to Peter. You belong to Christ. It is Christ that you follow, not me, not Apollos, not Peter. That's what you said. That's what you declared at your baptism. Now, that tendency to idolize certain preachers is very strong in today's church. I hope, no, I hope nobody's saying here, oh, I'm of Stephen. Oh, I'm of James. You know. uh, I'm of Josh. I'm of Callum. I hope hope nobody's saying that. I suppose I would be the last person to hear that, but I hope nobody's saying that. But, you know, you have this whole culture of the celebrity pastor, don't you? Um, especially in America, where they put pastors in pedestals. And uh, there's a group, you know, that follow John Piper, and they're known as the Piperettes. And they follow him all around America. If he's preaching at a certain place, they uh, he doesn't approve of it, but they follow him to this place and that place to he hear his preaching. We don't belong to John Piper. We've maybe been influenced by him. We belong to Christ. It is he who we follow through the waters of baptism. And then here are the three great principles for unity in the church. The unity of Christ, the death of Christ, the lordship of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, no, no. Look to Christ, he says, not to men. The problem with unity in the church, the appeal to unity in the church, the principles of unity in the church, and then the priority for unity in the church. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It seems that while in Corinth, Paul concentrated on evangelism and left the baptizing to others, maybe to Silas or to Timothy or even to uh, Aquila, who we, all, who we know all were in Corinth in the early days of the work. Now, it may be that he didn't want people exalting his uh, 
baptism. I've been baptized by the Apostle Paul. You know, we know, we know the Lord himself never baptized anyone. He let his disciples baptize his followers. And of course, the reason for that was you could just imagine how elevated that individual would become in his own estimation or in the estimation of others. You know, I've been baptized by Christ himself. So, Paul avoided baptizing and concentrated on preaching the gospel. Now, baptism is important. Paul didn't just say, I will give um, uh, baptism a, a, a miss. He's not saying that. He left it to Silas, to Timothy, and to others to do it while he concentrated on the work of evangelism. Now, in saying that, Paul highlights a great means of promoting unity in the church. When a church is passionate about preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, reaching out, involved in missionary work, then unity is less of a problem to that church. When a church gets its eyes off the needs of the lost, that's when disruption and difficulty occurs. Remember hearing Patrick Johnson years ago, the uh, the um, author of that great book, Operation World, where he lists the, lists the countries of the world and uh, gives spiritual statistics on, uh, and uh, highlights spiritual needs of e- each of those countries, something that every Christian, by the way, should have uh, in their library and on their desks for prayer on a daily basis. But that's, that's a great book. But he, years ago, he said, you either have mission or fission. Not F-I-S-H, but F-I-S-S-O-N. That you either have mission, you're either reaching out with the gospel, or the church becomes introspective and, uh, and divides and disintegrates. That the church's vision must, uh, and eyes must continually be lifted to the harvest. You see, trouble usually comes from those who have nothing else to do. In churches, you have watchers and workers. You can divide a church into watchers and workers, and the watchers usually become the wreckers. They're the ones who find fault because they have taken off their eyes off that the great priority of making Christ known, of preaching Christ. You know, there was um, a great division between John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield because George Whitfield was of a Calvinistic persuasion. He had Calvinistic convictions. And when he came to Ireland, actually, and they went to the little Baptist church in, in Dublin to, to preach, uh, the, the Irish people came and they asked him to start a, a Calvinistic Methodist denomination because uh, they were largely drawn from a Presbyterian background and wanted that emphasis. And after George Whitfield's premature death, Charles Wesley wrote this about him. He said, long by multitudes admired, no party for himself he e'er desired. His one desire was to make the Savior known, to magnify the name of Christ alone. If others strove, who should the greatest be? No lover of preeminence was he. If others strove, who should the greatest be? No lover of preeminence was he. And that should be our attitude, always gospel first, gospel first. That's our priority. That's what he meant in verse 10 about having the same mind. Um, I was thinking just, I was trying to think of an illustration. You remember that dream that Amy Carmichael had 
where uh, she saw all these blind people uh, walking uh, unaware towards a precipice, uh, and uh, they were falling over a cliff and falling to their death. And then there were Christians along the top of the cliff, and they were forming a human chain, holding hands to try and catch these people before they fell to their death. But there were huge gaps in that chain, and the the unaware were just falling through those gaps uh, to be lost. And then she looked over and and saw uh, a Sunday school social and Christians sitting on the the grassy top of the cliff making daisy chains for themselves, unconcerned about the gaps in the chain, people falling to their death. And I was thinking, you know, it's, it's not just that they're making daisy chains. They're watching a boxing match and they're pelting each other and they're, there's a pie for the Presbyterian and there's a blow for the Baptist and there's a, uh, a, a kick for the quirky ones. <laughs> I don't know. But, but, but isn't, isn't, that, isn't that the case? That, that so often division comes when we, we fight among ourselves, we take our eyes off the goal, which is a, a gospel goal, and as a result, the church is rendered ineffective for its mission to the world. That's how serious this is. The problem with unity in the church, the appeal for unity in the church, the principles of unity, and the priority, Paul says, God sent me not to baptize. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel, the gospel ought always to be our priority.